Hey, hey, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Ruth chapter 4. We'll be in Ruth 4, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that, be- that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he took off or drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we need you. Uh, We need you to understand your word. We need you to listen by your spirit. We know that the evil one would sow doubts and distract. And so, Father, I pray that for these next several minutes, that you would be kind and gracious, that you would bind the evil one, that you would speak through your servants, that your word might go deeply into the heart of your people and bear fruit a hundred and a thousandfold in this life and in the life to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So each year, the Supreme Court of the United States, that they will hear between 100 and 150 cases 
of the 7,000 that are referred to them. Now, depending on where you go in U.S. history, we've had as few as five justices on that court in 1789. That number has also been as high as 10 between 1863 and 1866. It's been nine since 1869. Decisions made at the Supreme Court level, they shape the fabric of our country. You may remember Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1857. Dred Scott was a slave from Illinois whose master had died and he appealed for his freedom. And it was the Supreme Court of our country that said that because he came from a lineage of people who were sold, that he could never be a free man. You might also remember other cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, 1869. And they ruled that separate but equal was okay and does not violate the 14th Amendment. You may not have heard about Buck versus Bell, 1927. Carrie Buck was diagnosed with feeble-mindedness, which we would today call mental illness or she would have special needs. She was raped by her foster parent's nephew and had a child. And they wanted to sterilize her because her mother was also diagnosed with feeble-mindedness. And the courts ruled eight to one, saying that that was okay. That one justice goes on record saying, three imbeciles are enough in our world from this family. And then you have cases like Brown versus Board of Education, which in essence reverse Plessy versus Ferguson, which says that separate does not and cannot be equal. And then Congress intervenes with the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and grants citizenship to people of color. The Americans with Disability Act was in 1990, and it reversed Buck versus Bell. Now, why do I give you this history? That, that when the Supreme Court rules, the matter before them is important, and it shapes the fabric of our country for good or for evil. Now, what does all of this have to do with our passage this morning? This is taking place in court. And I know when you read it, this does not look like a court. You don't see a judge. You you, you don't see jurors. You don't hear about a bench. You don't hear about a gavel. But I want us to step out of our day and time and go back into the day when this happened. That there's a custom that happens here with the taking off of the sandal. And we look at that. We're like, what is that? It's something that was true for their day and age. Did you notice that Boaz goes where? To the gate of the city. That's important. And then he gathers elders, 10 of them to be exact, 
and then he summons other witnesses. Now, why in the world would he be getting elders at the gate outside with witnesses? This is how you had court in Israel's day. You didn't go into a building. That when matters could not be solved between Israelites, you went to court, you went to the gate, and you summoned elders and witnesses. That when things were done that were egregious, you went to the court, you went to the gate, and when things were important, you went to the gate. And it was court. Now, what's important enough in this passage that demands court. It's redemption. You see the phrase redeemer or a word tied to redeemer or redemption? Ten times in this passage, Boaz was called a redeemer. In our passage today, we meet another redeemer closer than Boaz They're all talking about redeeming. It reads as if land can be redeemed and people can be redeemed. But what does redemption mean? It means to buy back that which has been lost. It means to pay a price in order to fix what has become unraveled. And that's what's happened to Naomi and to Ruth, that their lives have become unraveled, that famine and disobedience drove them away out of the land. And when they were in Moab, they lost husband and Naomi lost two sons and now her two daughters-in-law and herself, they're all widows and they are at the bottom of society as beggars. And the question that looms over this whole book is, will there be redemption in their story? Will they gain what they've lost? Will things that were broken be fixed? Would their status in Israel go from widowed outcasts who were poor? Will they be exalted and be restored? That's the question. So what I want to do is look at redemption These three ways, I want us to look at redemption in this story. And I don't want to talk about us under the first point. All I want to do is have a a, a gaze upon redemption being outworked in this story for these women and everybody involved in this chapter. And then I want to step back and say, okay, have you seen redemption in your story? That's important, because if you haven't, your life is spiraling out of control, and it will land you in an eternity apart from God. And then I want to step back and say, okay, what about redemption and the stories of people whose stories are still being written? So, go go those three places with me. Let's look at redemption in this story. Here's the first sub-point. The first sub-point 
And this, these three same subpoints, they're true in every major point that I'm going to talk about. So just track with me there. Let's look at redemption in this story. Here's the first subpoint that God's providence and human effort are working together. Now, last week, you might remember how Ruth 3 ended. It ended with Naomi telling Ruth, stay put, stay here. I want you to have rest. And this man will not rest until this matter is solved today. Which means that what we're reading in Ruth 4 probably took place the day of the night that Ruth laid at the threshing floor. That Boaz wastes no time. He gets up and he goes and he walks to the city and then he gets to work. He goes to the gate. He goes and finds elders and then he gets 10 of them. I need 10 of you. You, 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 you. Come and follow me and sit here. And then we hear about these witnesses who were also there. And we don't know how many. We don't know where they came from. But the language here is that Boaz was active, that he worked, that he took 10 elders and told them to sit here. Now, why would he do that? Because the matter at hand is so important that you can't have a gentleman's agreement and do it. You can't just shake on it and call it a wrap. No, you got to go to court to handle this. And so he does everything he needs to do to get the appropriate people at the appropriate place at the right time to be a part of this. That you're already seeing that this man understands that while God could providentially, he could snap his fingers and give Ruth a child. He does that with Mary, right? He could providentially just give them food. He does that in the Bible. But Boaz understands that redemption is this outworking of God's plan to invite humans to partner with him as he does the redeeming. Now, but notice the first thing that Boaz does. So I, I, I want you to see his work. He's been generous. He's been kind. He's been protective. He's done everything. But I also want you to see his first act in this passage. Now, notice what it says. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down. <laughs> You probably ought to laugh when you read that. That's a beautiful way to start your plan by sitting. He sat down. And then look at what the text says after that. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. This isn't the first time we've seen that language in Ruth. Remember when Ruth went to the field to glean and she happened to go to the field that belonged to Boaz? She didn't happen to do it. That was God in his providential care orchestrating and weaving and working. And it's the same thing in this passage. Boaz goes to the gate and he does his work. He does his part for gaining and getting the people. But the first thing he does is go take a seat. And out of the blue, the guy that he was just talking about just kind of walks by that day. And he's like, okay, God, I'm not working, and you just brought him to me. 
And who knows, maybe the guy forgot bread at the market and his wife was about to cook dinner and he forgot bread and is on the way to the market and Boaz is like, oh, here you are. We don't know why the guy is walking by the gate at that particular time, but in, in the book of Ruth, this is not a coincidence. This is God providentially working to bring about the redemption of these ladies. That God from the beginning of time has created us to rule and to reign with him. When God wanted to redeem his people from Egypt, he sent Moses as his representative. When God created this earth, he shared authority and shared power with Adam. He didn't have to. That this is the type of God that he is, that he invites us into his work. And so this is the first thing we're learning about redemption in the book of Ruth. The second thing we see is that, that there's a price for redemption. And if you look at verses 3 through 10, you'll see that, that, that this price is, is, is very, very high. It's costly. Now, notice how this plays out. Boaz has the elders and he has the people and they're there and, and he initiates conversation. And in our Bibles, he calls the Redeemer friend. And I actually think that's a very generous translation. That this is not the same word for friend that is used throughout the Bible. That we could almost translate this, someone whose name is known but we choose not to reveal the name, right? Like it's a, it's a weird thing that's kind of going on here with the way this guy is greeted and the reality that we don't get his name in any of the book. Now, Boaz tells him, hey, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I want you to hear this in the presence of these witnesses so that you can buy it. Remember, in Israel, it was important to keep land in a family. And so that's what's going to happen. We think that what Naomi has returned and she's poor and that she chooses to sell this land to this next of kin. And he would give her, say, 10 grand for the parcel of land. And that land would be deeded over to him. And because she has no sons, that land is perpetually his. And so he hears this deal, and he's like, cha-ching? Yeah, I'll give you 10 grand. I'll give it to you right now. She can live off of this for the rest of her life, and she's going to die. And guess what? That land is going to be my land. And then if you ever play spades, you know, somebody got the little joker, and then you got, like, the big joker, and you put the big joker out, and you kind of win the book. That's what Boaz does right here. He pulls out the big joker. He says, okay, there's a caveat here I need to let you in on. Because the day that you buy the field, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. And you get to have her. And because her husband is also of our clan, you have the right to, to do that as well. Remember in Israel, you wanted land and you wanted the name of the deceased to continue. And what Mr. No Name wants is the land. 
But what Mr. No Name doesn't want is the land and to perpetuate the name of Malon, who's also from their clan, who's dead. Now, all of a sudden, this doesn't look attractive. Now, why does it not look attractive? Because think about this. I pay you 10 grand for the land. It's my land. But I also have to marry Ruth. And if I marry Ruth, we have to have a son. And it might take me two or three or four tries to have a son. And those three kids, before I get a son, if they're daughters, they're my kids. And I have to raise them like they're my own. And then when the son is born, I have to raise him as well. And then when he gets of age, he gets the land back. So wait a minute. I got to pay you 10 grand to get the land. Then we have to have children. And those are my children. And once we get a boy, that boy gets the land that I just paid you 10 grand for. And he's like, no, bro. That's too much. I, I can't do that. That will impair my estate. You see the cost for redemption here? Now, you'll notice this thing. This guy walks away from this opportunity, and he does something. Like, he takes his sandal off, and Boaz gets his sandal. Now, now what is that about? That's about Deuteronomy 25. Because it says, if a brother refuses to lay with the dead brother's wife and she takes him to court, if he refuses to do this in the company of the elders, she takes off his sandal and she spits in his face. And his name throughout all of Israel will be the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, I don't think they spit on him because this technically isn't his brother. So there's something going on here. But I think that's why he's not named in the passage. Because Deuteronomy 25 says his name has changed. He's forever known as the man who had his sandals taken off. Why? Because he has just walked away from participating in what God is doing to redeem the poor and the dead. And Boaz is saying, no, I'm keeping my sandals on. I'm going to walk towards them, no matter what it costs. If it costs me 10 grand to get the field, here. And I will marry Ruth. And the covenant that Ruth made with Naomi is that they lodge together. So in my marrying Ruth, I'm also bringing Naomi into my house. And I'm going to sacrifice and pay whatever the cost. And I'll up you. I'll go and marry her, and I will joyfully let our son have the land that I'm paying her for. In other words, to redeem and to restore what is broken, there is nothing Boaz will not give to do it. Which moves us into the third subpoint: What's the purpose of redemption? And I think you see this in verses 11 through 12, that, that, that look at what the witnesses say in verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, we are witnesses. Now, here's what I think is happening. Before you look at it, track with me. I actually think that, Bo, that, that Ruth and Naomi are back at home. 
Because at the end of chapter three, Naomi tells Ruth, let us stay put. He will get to work and this matter will be settled today. And so it reads as if Boaz goes in the town. His intent is to settle this matter. And somehow he's going to come back and let them know what has happened. So I imagine that they're at home kind of waiting. How will this play out? But that does not stop the crowd from pronouncing a blessing over both of the women. Now, why am I saying both of the women are pronounced a blessing over? It's through the language here. So notice, all right, look at right there at, at verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So I th- who is that? Who is the woman there? I actually think that's Naomi. Now, why? Because look at the second part. And may you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's the difference between woman and young woman. In Ruth chapter 2, who is called young woman? It's Ruth. She's the young woman. Well, who is woman? I think it's Naomi. You'll notice in the next section that when the child is born, look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? Naomi. Even though Ruth bore the son, the son is credited to Naomi. And so what's happening here? I think the crowd is pronouncing a blessing over both of them. Naomi, you're old, but may you be like the mothers of Israel. May from you come fruitfulness that builds up and sustains our people. And in the next few verses, that child is credited to her, even though she didn't give birth. They're pronouncing a blessing over her. And then they said, okay, Boaz, you act worthily. Now, why would they tell him to act worthily? And why would they link up Perez and Tamar and Judah? What's going on there? You got to go back to Genesis 38. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Tamar, so Judah has three sons. The first son is Er, Er, and he was wicked, and the Lord killed him. So it was his brother's turn to go and to be a husband to Tamar, and his name was Onan. And Onan wanted the pleasure aspect without the procreation aspect that was so important to allowing the name of the dead brother to live And so God struck the second son down and Judah had a third son, but this son was young and Judah promised Tamar that I will give him to you when he is of age. And time goes on and Judah does not keep his word to Tamar. And she keeps herself and she waits. And one day 
she sees that this son who should be her husband has not been given to her. And then Judah's wife dies. And so he goes into the city and he sleeps with who he thinks is a prostitute. And he gives this prostitute payment. And then he hears later, hey, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been unfaithful. And they are about to stone her. And then Tamar says, I have laid with the man whose goods I have, and she presents these goods back, and guess whose goods they were? They were Judah's. And that's when he was cut to the heart. He says, I'm sorry. You were more righteous than I. I forgot, and I neglected, and I did not perpetuate the name of the dead. And she gave birth to twins. And the younger was Perez. But right when she was giving birth, he pulled the other twin down and he came out first. And so when when the crowd pronounces a blessing over Boaz, Boaz, you be worthy here. What, What are they saying? They're saying, hey, don't you go pull a Judah on us. Don't you go pull a Onan on us. You perpetuate the dead of Malon through Ruth. And you let his name live on. And a fighter will be born. And that fighter is in the lineage of David, in the lineage of Jesus. Now, what's the purpose of redemption? It's to rewrite their story. You remember how this book started? They were not in their land. God was not their God. They were widows and there was no male heir. They were on the brink of death. And what God does through redemption is to overturn all of that. You will be in my land and I will be your God and I will give you an heir. I will restore everything you have lost. This could have ended tragically for these women. And it didn't. Because God would not leave them there. And this is what this crowd is doing. They're showing us the purpose of redemption. It is to fully and totally restore what could have been lost. It's as if God takes their story. And if you're reading it from the beginning, it reads as if the ending will end with suffering and sickness and hardship and loneliness. And God grabs a pen in divine ink and he says, no, I'm going to rewrite this story. It's not going to end like you think it will end. Because I'm a God who rewrites stories. Now, what does this have to do with us? At first glance, can we just marvel at the beauty of God in this passage? We're learning about his character. We're learning about his power. We're learning that he takes no delight in our lives unraveling. We're learning that he is a God who wants to put the pieces back together that we may flourish 
that he's drawing us to himself that we would worship. And as we look at these stories here in this passage, we're supposed to pause and worship and read it for what it is. This is beautiful writing. Which moves us to these last two big points are going to be really quick. Is there redemption in your story? New Testament writers will often say these things were written as an example. Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners as an example of God's patience and kindness. And the question before us is, is there redemption in your story? You see, Isaiah says, we all like sheep, we go astray. Each of us in our own ways. That we come here not pursuing God and not wanting God. And what you chase may not be what everyone else chases, but we're all, we all come here bent towards walking away from God. As Elimelech packed it up and walked out of Bethlehem to pursue a better life in the land of Moab, we all do that. We all turn our backs away from true life and in God's goodness, he sends people to point us to the good news. Who did God use in your story to bring you to himself? Is it a mother who's no longer here? Is it a grandfather who's going to be with the Lord? Is it a former pastor? Have you picked up your old children's Bible and you've seen your scribbles in it. Those are not coincidences. Like God is a God who moves towards the broken and he is pleased to use people to stand in the breach and to tell us the good news. And he's pleased to use people who will tell us the same message that there is coming one from this lineage right here in Matthew's gospel. Matthew links Jesus with Judah, with Tamar, with Perez, with Boaz, with Ruth, with Obed, with Jesse, and with David. All of these people are bound up in Jesus, and then Jesus comes as the ultimate God-man. He's the only one who is truly God and fully man. In Jesus, you have the best divine partnership for our redemption. And if humans have led you to him, praise God. It's not a coincidence. Do you know the high price of your redemption? That you see it in this book, that there is nothing that Boaz will not give in order to buy them back and to redeem them. And so we also have to have a redeemer who will not spare anything, anything. It's a bunch of bootleg redeemers out there. And there is one 
who is infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely courageous, infinitely beautiful, infinitely acceptable in the sight of God. And it's Christ. And he says, whatever the cost, you name it. Go to the earth, I'll do it. The infinite dwelling in the finite, I'll do it. Pass through the uterus of my own creation, I'll do it. Be confined to time and space, I'll do it. Suffer on a cross, I'll do it. Be alienated from you, I'll do it. Be covered in the cloud of your judgment, I'll do it. To really die, I will do it. I will become sin in order that they can be redeemed. And I will take them to myself, not from a distance, but I will pledge myself to them in love. I will be the good husband. And I will take them. And they'll be mine. There's not a price Jesus would not pay to rewrite your story. And what's the purpose of your redemption? It's so that you who started off as rebels, walking away from him without hope and without God, that your story did not have to end with you deceived in hell apart from your maker forever. Jesus says, Father, I will go and turn them around and we will begin this work of rewriting their stories and it's in ink and we know how the story ends. It ends with all of his people at home with him, fully glorified, not able to sin, only enjoying him and creation all of our days forever, worshiping and praising and adoring his name forever. That's how your story will end. It's the purpose of your redemption. Have you been redeemed? Which moves us into our last point. Redemption in the stories that are still being written. Not everyone has this for them right now. There are people in your families, in your jobs, who live next to you. And this is not how their story will end as of today. One of my favorite writers is Andre Lauren Benjamin. And here's what he writes. We were on our back staring at the stars above, talking about what we're going to be when we grow up. I asked her, what do you want to be? She said, alive. It made me think for a minute, then I looked in her eyes. I could have died. Time went on. I got grown. Rhyme got strong. Mine got blown. I came back home to find little Sasha was gone. Her mama said she would a dude that be treating her wrong. I kept on singing my song and hoping at a show that I would one day see her standing in the back of the front row. But two weeks later, she got found in the back of a school. 
She was dead with a needle in her arm. Her baby was two months due. Did you hear what she said when she wanted to be, when she grew up? All she said was alive. You talk about hopelessness. You talk about being lost. And there are people, that's what they aspire to be, just alive. Could it be that God in his goodness wants to partner with you and I to point them to our Redeemer? It doesn't have to end like that. That we have this precious message of the gospel that changes eternities and changes lives. That their stories that are still being written can be written with the happy ending that we have. May God do that in our hearts. May we who have been redeemed be ready and willing to be used by him to point people back to him. Let's pray. Father, you're lovely and your son is beautiful and the gospel is amazing. Thank you for redemption both in this story and our stories and by faith the stories of those whose lives are still being written. So help us, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.